It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have uh, your Bibles with you, if you would turn to First Book of Kings, uh, chapter 17. If you've just uh, been given, I was one of those who didn't bring their Bible this morning, so I have the same Bible as those that have just been distributed. It's on page 299. If you're a visitor and just had a, a received a Bible from the ushers, um, I'm aware that I'm slightly shorter than Chad speaking from this uh, pulpit, but... Um, Please, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold... I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God?' You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Praise God for his holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, you who live and dwell in unapproachable light, you who are infinite and perfect, we acknowledge, O Lord, as we come into your presence today, the finiteness of our minds. 
Minds that are not only limited, Lord, but darkened by our sin and by our rebellion. We give you thanks that we have cut ourselves off from you, yet you have reached out to us. You have revealed yourself to us in your works of creation and of providence, supremely in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the dealings with your people that you have recorded in your holy word over the centuries. Now, Lord, as we come to reflect upon one of those incidents, we ask, O God, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth and lift our eyes from this earthly realm and point them towards heaven where our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now lives and intercedes for us. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. One of the uh, common criticisms you'll hear uh, sometimes on the television, maybe you'll read it in uh, a magazine, sometimes you even hear it said by Christians, by those in the church, is that there is a great contrast between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And often it runs along lines like this, that the God of the Old Testament is, is sort of uh, unremittingly angry, maybe we might put it rather crudely and say is, is often in a, a sort of bad temper and tends to exact his revenge and punish his people rather quickly. And then when you move to the New Testament, we're confronted with a picture of, of Jesus, uh, who is presented, at least in the way that he's often uh, popularly talked about, as this unconditionally kind and merciful person. And the argument is that there is this, this contrast, this contradiction even, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Sometimes it manifests itself in, in objections that non-Christians will bring uh, to the Bible, and it'll run something like this, that, uh, you know, I like Jesus, I, I love the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament seems to be a miserable and vindictive character. Well, I want to suggest today that that is a completely false picture, and do so by looking in some detail at the story that we've just read. It's important we grasp a little bit of the background first before we go to the dynamics of the story itself. It occurs at a very particular point in Israel's history. King David, the greatest of the Israelite kings, has died and his uh, kingdom passes to his son Solomon. And Solomon starts very well. Uh, The Lord appears to him in a dream and Solomon doesn't ask for riches or power. He asks for wisdom. And so the Lord makes him wise but then adds riches and power to his reign. And for some years, Solomon enjoys a a glorious reign, so glorious that the Queen of Sheba uh, comes and travels a long distance just to see for herself uh, the great story she has heard about King Solomon. But towards the end of his reign, he he really goes off the rails. He he marries uh, a lot of uh, women from foreign countries, and he he brings, uh, he starts worshiping Uh, the gods of these new wives. And so the Lord proclaims judgment against Solomon and says that the kingdom is going to come under judgment, not during Solomon's time for the sake of Solomon's father David. Uh, The Lord will leave the kingdom intact during Solomon's reign. But when Solomon dies and the kingdom passes to his son, the Lord will come in judgment against Israel and the kingdom will be divided. And sure enough it is. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the the throne, and uh, like many young men, he's not particularly wise, uh, and so he ignores the wisdom of his uh, father's older, wiser counselors who tell him to deal with the people mercifully 
and uh, gently, and he sides with the, the hot-headed young men whose company he prefers, who tell him to treat the people like dirt, to grind them down. You've got power, why not enjoy it by abusing it? And so he does, and it leads a member of his household, a man called Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, to rebel. And Jeroboam, son of Nebat, takes ten of the twelve tribes of Israel into rebellion, the so-called northern kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam is a powerful man. He's also politically very astute. As Jeroboam faces one particular problem, and Jeroboam's problem is this, he rules the north, he completely controls the north of Israel. But Jerusalem is in the south. Jerusalem lies in the territory of the kingdom of Judah. And that means that Jeroboam, the people that Jeroboam rules, will want to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And Jeroboam knows that over time, uh, his people, with their divided geographical loyalties, will want to reunite with the kingdom of Judah and jeopardize the reign of his own house. And so Jeroboam does this, makes this move that's both politically brilliant and, uh, and theologically disastrous. He sets up golden calves in the cities of Bethel and Dan in the north. And he says to the people of Israel in a sort of mock recapitulation, a mock replaying of uh, the scenes at the bottom of Mount Sinai, he points his people to these golden calves and he says, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the gods that saved you. Worship them. And so... We then move into the story of the book of Kings, and uh, time after time, when a new king rises in Israel, a little formula is used to describe him. It'll be said that so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, became king in Israel, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he led Israel to sin, the false worship that Jeroboam had introduced. Every king that comes after him doesn't have the strength of character to tear down these idols and reinstate true religion in the king of Israel. And that's how the kings are introduced until the king who's reigning during the incident that I've just described. He's described in a different way. If you look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, we read about the rise of Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, becomes king in Israel. And then we read this interesting change in the way he's described in verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Notice how he's described, as if it had been a little thing for him to follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He takes it to the next level. He marries a foreign princess, Jezebel, and he brings the worship of Baal into God's own country, into the territory of Israel. And it's at this point, really, that we might say that, humanly speaking, The Lord says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Now I'm going to act. 
And he acts in this very, very distinctive way. Suddenly at the start of verse 17, as if it is out of nowhere, this man Elijah of Tishbe, uh, Elijah the Tishbite, appears. And he confronts Ahab. He will confront Ahab and say, there will be no rain until I, the Lord, say there will be rain. That's a rather poetic form of justice, actually, because Baal was a fertility god. This is an agrarian society, a society based on agriculture. This is a society where fertility, where the survival of the society depends entirely upon rain. If it doesn't rain for six, seven, eight years, the people die. I live in western Pennsylvania. It rains, I think, 250 days out of 365 in a year. I'm sure living in California, you can sympathize with this. If the irrigation system breaks down in California, how long is California going to last? Southern California is not going to last very long if you can't transport water there. The Lord comes with this very particular kind of judgment against the people. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, you, you, you're worshipping Baal. You're worshipping Baal. He's the God of rain. Let's see how that works for you. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am sovereign. I am in control of rain. There will be no rain until I say so. You run off to your little God of the rain, worship him, and see what happens. You've no interest in me? Well, I'm going to back off from you for the time being and bring judgment against the people. It's a death sentence against the people, specifically tailored to their rebellion. They're looking to bail for rain, and the Lord says, there will be no rain until I say so. Of course, uh, as, the, uh, as, the, as the ground dries up, uh, uh, people will, will need water. And so the Lord sends Elijah off to this brook, the brook Cherith. And he says, live there and I'll provide you with food and water while we're waiting for the judgment to bite. But if you know anything about how water operates, you know, springs and rivers depend upon the water table, the level of water under the surface of the earth. And as the drought begins to bite, the water table drops. And when the water table drops, the streams and the rivers and the brooks that depend upon the water table, they dry up too. And so after a while, the, uh, the brook dries up. And so Elijah is facing the same peril as his countrymen at this point. He has no water. And so the Lord says to him, go off to Zarephath. Zarephath is an interesting location to send him. It's not in Israel. It's in the borderlands. And it belongs to Sidon or Phoenicia. This is an area where Baal was particularly strong. The, the local worship, if you like, is Baal worship here. Baal has home field advantage, we might say, in Zarephath. The Lord sends Elijah out of the promised land and he says, go to this widow, go to this widow in the land of Baal and I'll look after you there. And we, we have this very touching scene where uh, he comes across this, this poor woman. She's a widow. Uh, she's very, very vulnerable in this kind of society as a widow. No man to work and provide for her. And she's got a son. And Elijah meets her at the, in the city and he asks her to provide him with some food. And she tells this very sorry tale that she's about to go home and, and use the last of her supplies to have one last meal with her son and then prepare to die. The drought is biting all across the eastern end of the Mediterranean at this point. And this woman, too, is feeling the terrible effects of the drought and the famine that would have followed in its wake. But Elijah 
following the commands of the Lord, works this amazing miracle whereby uh, the oil and the flour, they'll, they'll keep on being supplied for as long as necessary until such time as the Lord lifts the judgment. It would be kind of nice if the story ended there, but in some ways the most important moment in the story is yet to come, and that's what happens next. Tragically, this woman's son suddenly becomes ill and dies. And you can understand that she feels aggrieved. I mean, we might look at that and say, she shouldn't really have cursed the prophet, but humanly speaking, we can understand why she would have done. I've never lost a child. I know people who have. I can only imagine, right, it's hard for me to imagine. I can only imagine how unimaginable the pain of losing a child is. We sort of accept that we're going to stand by the graves of our contemporaries and our peers, but stand by the grave of a child. That's peculiarly unnatural and horrific. And that's what this woman faces. She has nobody except her son, and now he's taken away from her. And that's when Elijah, of course, works his greatest miracle so far. Engages in this rather weird, charitably, it's weird, process And he raises her son from the dead. And that's where the curtain comes down on this particular vignette, this particular scene in the life of Elijah. You might say, well, that's a a great story. It has has human interest. It's got a, a cosmic dimension. God's judgment against an entire nation. And yet it zeroes in on the the human passions and uh, of survival in Elijah, and then the terrible tragedy that strikes this woman's household, and then the, the moment of, uh, of triumph on, the, on this tiny individual level when the child is brought back from the dead. I say it's a great story. Old Testament's full of great stories. Big question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with these events from thousands of years ago? How do we make sense of them? Do they have anything to say to us today? Well, I think they do. And I want to bring out four aspects from this story that I think are a perennial concern to Christians and indeed to human beings in general. First of all, I think this story tells us about the power of God in His Word. Secondly, I think this story tells us about the power of God in His holiness. Thirdly, I think this story tells us about the power of God in His mercy. And then finally, and perhaps most poignantly, it tells us about the power of God in the midst of death. Four things, particularly the last, as we all have to face death at some point. Four things that I think are of, or should be of, interest to us today. First of all, the power of God in His Word. The most interesting thing we learn about Elijah in this story is actually the thing we don't learn about him. Elijah is introduced in a way that should immediately set alarm bells ringing for anybody, anybody who reads the Bible. My wife and I mentioned this, so we're huge sort of crime noir fans and uh, read through a lot of Swedish crime thrillers over the last few years, reached the end of all the Swedish crime thrillers we could find. Now we're reading Icelandic crime thrillers. And uh, one of the fascinating things I've discovered in Iceland, I never knew this. In Iceland, you have no surname. Icelandic people don't have surnames. They simply have patronymics. So when I was growing up in the UK, one of the big TV personalities was an Icelandic guy, Magnus Magnusson. I didn't realize Magnusson's not his surname. Magnus was the name of his father, and therefore he was Magnus Magnusson. 
Had he been a girl called Ursa, for example, he'd have been Ursa Magnus Dottir. Ursa, the daughter of Magnus. Typically, when we look at the Old Testament, when we're introduced to somebody, we're told who their father is. Ahab, son of Omri. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Solomon, son of David. Why are we told that? Because that's what gives them their authority. Their family lineage. Their parents locate them in terms of their authority within their culture. If you want to know what status Elijah has, you need to know who his dad is. You need to know who his people are. What's interesting about the way he's introduced is this. We're not told anything about his people. He's like a man from nowhere. Elijah the Tishbite. That's effectively the Bible saying, or the writer of 1 Kings saying, Elijah, the man with no status. Or the man whose status is irrelevant to the story I'm going to tell. Why? Why does he leave that out? The point is this. Everything that Elijah does in this chapter and in subsequent chapters has nothing to do with his personal authority whatsoever. And everything to do with the authority of the one for whom he speaks. Elijah's authority is not grounded in who he is or what status he has in his cultural society. It is grounded in the fact that he is an ambassador for God. When he speaks, it is God speaking. Many years I was the the dean at the seminary where I used to teach and I had a secretary. And on occasion I would have to uh, tell my secretary to, to summons a faculty member to my office for a difficult conversation. I got to pull rank on them. Got to tell them they got to raise their game on some point. And my secretary would send the email and, and command the faculty member to come to my office. But in the grand scheme of the sort of hierarchy, you know, faculty members are sort of up here. Secretaries are somewhere down here in the hierarchy. But when she sent an email out instructing a faculty member to come and meet with me, it was as if it was me commanding them to come and meet. She may have been a sec- my secretary, but she had the authority that I had in that situation because she spoke my words on behalf of me. That's what Elijah does here. He speaks on behalf of God, and that's the point of leaving out his dad's name. Elijah's authority is the authority that comes, and only the authority that comes from the Word of God. What's the application of that to today? I think it applies to the church. What is the power of the church? The power of the church is purely and simply that which it has, which she has, when she proclaims God's word. When the church speaks with authority, she does so only because she speaks in accordance with God's word. I can't command you all next week to turn up wearing canary yellow clothes. I can't do that. I can't tell you where to send your children to school. The Bible doesn't give me the authority to do that. All I can do this morning, all Chad and Jason can do week by week, all the elders of this church can do week by week, all they can do is proclaim and apply the Word of God. And where the Word of God does not speak, the church has no authority. And where the Word of God does speak, then the church speaks with the authority of God Himself. It's what we call a ministerial authority. 
It's not the fact that this place calls itself a church that gives it some kind of intrinsic authority. It's because this church proclaims the word of God. She has authority only because she proclaims the word of God. The church, if you like, is authoritative only as and when she acts as an ambassador for God himself. Second thing to note about this passage I mentioned is the power of God in his holiness. God will give his glory to no other. That's the basic uh, storyline of, of kings, if you like. The whole conflict with Baal that's initiated by Elijah and brought to a conclusion, brought to a conclusion by Elisha. The whole point of this struggle is to press home on the people. God will give his glory to no other. He will not tolerate that his people look to other gods for that which he alone can provide. That's central to his holiness. That's central to his holiness. What is sin? What is rebellion? It is looking to something or somebody other than God for that which only God can give and that which God delights to give and is therefore an affront to him when we will not receive it from his hands. Generally, of course, we look to ourselves. That's the essence of most sins. We look to ourselves to provide that which only God can provide. Baal, as I've said, is a God of rain and fertility. Stopping rain, it's not that God's sitting up there in heaven thinking, okay, how can I judge the people? You know, let's do a random judgment generator and see what comes up. This is a very specific judgment. You say God, Baal is the God of rain. You look for Baal for rain. Well, let's see how that works for you. Stopping rain is a direct challenge to Baal's sovereignty over the elements. And notice the choice of Zarephath. This will come up again. Mount Carmel is in similar territory. The choice of Zarephath. Lord said, I'm going to put my man in the middle, in the middle of Baal country, where Baal should be strong, and I'm going to look after him. I'm going to demonstrate my power, not on the macro scale, the way I'm doing with my judgment. I'm going to demonstrate my power in the person by putting him in the middle of enemy territory and keeping the supply lines open. The choice of rain, the choice of Zarephath. We might say a challenge to Baal's meteorological sovereignty and a challenge to Baal's geographical sovereignty, both of which will reach their peak fulfillment on Mount Carmel. How does that apply to us today? We worship a jealous and a holy God. We have a constant tendency to look elsewhere, do we not, for our security and our well-being, and that is an affront to God's holiness. And that means that God will come in judgment, even against his own people at times, corporately and individually. Hebrews 12 makes that clear. But the point is, like the judgment against Israel, the judgment against Israel here is not to destroy Israel in the end. It's to restore them. It's to bring them back to where they should be. The Lord is not some indulgent parent who punishes a child's misdeeds by taking them on a luxury holiday somewhere, hoping that it'll make them like him better. The Lord is punishing his people in these chapters to bring them back. That's what good parents do, isn't it, when they're bringing up their kids. Sometimes you don't reward kids for bad behavior. You punish kids for bad behavior, not because you're vindictive, 
but because your job as a parent is to make them into responsible, mature adults, and that's the way it's done. It's the same here. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines us for our own good. Thirdly, the power of God in his mercy. Notice that in the midst of this macro judgment against Israel, the Lord still cares for individuals. We'll find out there are quite a few more of these individuals in the next chapter or two, but at this point, it just looks like Elijah. There's one guy left. And in the midst of this chaos caused by the judgment of the Lord, he looks after his one man. He provides him with the brook, and he provides him with food. And then he sends him to Zarephath. God's judgment against Israel corporately, notice, does not require that God deny himself or change his character. Not only is the judgment specially selected here to fit the circumstances, the mercy is specially selected as well. The great objects of mercy in this story are ultimately a foreign widow and an orphan. So now the Lord describes himself in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And that lies, that's the bedrock of Old Testament ethics, actually. I think it's the bedrock of New Testament ethics. The people of God are then commanded to reflect the character of God. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why would that person be cursed? Because the task of the people of God is to reflect the character of God. And those who despise the sojourner, who despise the fatherless, who despise the widow, they are not reflecting the character of God in any way, shape, or form. Notice here, you can imagine if you were caught up in this saying, look at the judgment against Israel. Israel, God's people. Look at the chaos being caused by this terrible judgment that the Lord has brought against his people. Has he changed his character? Has God become kind of angry and horrible where once he was gracious and merciful? Is this the same God who brought us out of Egypt? Well, you could point to Elijah and this widow and say, yes. But look at how this God executes mercy. This is still the God who cares for the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. Even as societies come under God's judgment, even today as the church is perhaps coming under God's judgment, the promises of God's character hold good. We see that in the extreme circumstances of 1 Kings 17. And we see that reflected in the promises of the New Testament. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't matter what's done to the church. God's promise applies. Now, let's be uh, clear on what we mean by that. That God is not there promising that any individual congregation or any individual denomination 
will survive right to the very end. But the church, the church considered globally, considered cosmically, the church wins. The church will win. Whatever happens locally, whatever judgments are brought down on local churches and individual denominations and nations, the church, the bride of Christ, ultimately wins. God continues to care for his people according to his character, even during those times when, according to his character, he also brings judgment to bear as well. And that brings me now to my last and most uh, and final point, the point I think that should press in on all of us most powerfully. A lot of young people here today. Difficult to believe you're going to die when you're 14. Uh, by the time you hit your 50s, it's becoming more of a reality. I can tell you. I never thought I'd lose any hair when I was 14. I used to laugh at the baldness of my granddad and my dad. The Lord has brought a kind of appropriate judgment, I suppose, on me <laughs> over the ages. Death is a reality we'll all face. It is approaching us, however distant it may be at the moment. There will be a day when we wake up and brush our teeth and comb our hair, what's left of it, for the last time. And we will never see the sun go down or rise again. That will come to all of us. And that brings me, as I say, to the most important and pressing application or lesson from this passage, and that's the power of God in the midst of death. Now, this is a weird ritual. This is a weird ritual. When I was a pastor, uh, thank God, I never had to deal with a situation where a family lost a child. That must be one of the most difficult pastoral circumstances to face, and I was spared that. But even so, there's no way that I would ever have addressed the situation as Elijah does here. I think we mistake this passage if we look at it and say, well, this is, you know, somebody reports a death, this is how to deal with it. I think what Elijah does here is sort of unique for particular reasons. First of all, notice that it's weird. And I don't just mean weird in the conventional sense. I mean, anybody looking at this would say, that's a weird ritual. He takes the child up, lies on the bed, lies on him, top of him three times. That's weird. But in the context of the Old Testament, it's even more weird than that. Because there's very clear lessons, very clear teaching about dead bodies in the Old Testament. You touch a dead body and you are unclean. What that means is you touch a dead body and you are excluded from the people of God until such time as you've gone through a special cleansing process that brings you back in. And the rule is so brutal that, you know, even if you don't know you've touched a dead body, or if you accidentally touch something that has touched a dead body, you're rendered unclean. You know, if perish the thought, you go home this afternoon, lie down in your bed for a sleep, and uh, say, oh, somebody died in that bed last night. By Old Testament standards, you'd be unclean. It's not a question of whether you knew about it. It's a question of whether it actually happened. The last thing, really, that Elijah should have done at this point was throw himself on top of the body. Because by every rule in the Old Testament, that should make Elijah unclean and cause him to be out of communion, out of fellowship with the people of God and with God himself until such time as he'd been cleansed. Whoever touches a dead body, Numbers 19, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. A long time. But that's not what happens here. The child comes to life. 
we might say there's a reverse flow. It's not that Elijah becomes unclean, spiritually dead to the people of God for seven days. It's that the child is rendered clean. The uncleanness of death leaves the child at this point. Elijah, and Elijah doesn't just touch the child, he lies on top of him. Why does he do that? Well, he's not just touching the child. I think what Elijah wants to do is thoroughly identify himself as far as humanly possible with the child in death. If you've ever seen a dead body, it's an odd feeling, isn't it, to see the body of somebody you knew and talked with and laughed with, to see them dead. dead is the, death is this incredibly powerful force. It looks like them, but they're completely separated from you. What Elijah does is he He tries to step into death at this point as far as he possibly can. And the child is brought back to life. Why do I say that this is not uh, an example to follow in contemporary pastoral practice, but is there for a unique reason? The reason is this. If you read the New Testament, you'll see an awful lot about Elijah and Elisha being tied in with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's really happening here is Elijah is foreshadowing the ministry of those great men, John the Baptist, and ultimately Jesus Christ, who come after him. Think about what Jesus does. Philippians 2, what is it that Jesus does? Jesus so thoroughly identifies with us in our humanity and in our death that his work raises us from the dead. So powerful is that resurrection work that in Colossians, Paul will even use uh, present tense, even though Paul is very clear that the resurrection happens at some point in the future. He'll talk about, you have been raised with Christ. It's so certain. Christ's identification with us in our humanity and in our death is so powerful and has worked so certainly that even now, though we've not yet dead, it's as if we've already been raised. It's so certain that it's going to happen. And we see a similar thing like this happen to Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5. The latter part of Matthew chapter 5, I think of Matthew 5 as the great chapter of uncleanness in the New Testament. Young ruler comes to Jesus. The ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's dying. My my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Can you come and help? And Jesus starts to move towards the the young ruler's house. But in the midst of of him heading in that direction, a great crowd gathers around him. And there's a woman there who's had a flow of blood for 12 years. Uh, uh, When a woman's on her period in the Old Testament, they're unclean. This woman's had a a period for 12 years. She's been unclean for 12 long years. Might seem like a drop in the ocean when you get older, 12 years, but that's the entire span of the little girl's life. I think we're told that the girl is 12 years old and this woman's been uh, unclean for 12 years in order for us to be reminded that it's like a lifetime. This woman's been unclean for a lifetime. And she touches Jesus. He doesn't know she's reaching out to touch him. He doesn't know she's unclean. She touches him and we're told the power went out of him. He should have been made unclean by touching a woman with a flow of blood that should have made him unclean. Same rules applies with a corpse. But we're told Jesus felt the energy going out of him. Who knows exactly what he felt, what that felt like. But the point is, Jesus should have been made unclean, and actually, the woman's flow of blood stopped. She's made immediately clean by this. 
And the tragedy of that, of course, is that it delays Jesus. And the little girl he's heading to, to cure who's ill, she dies. In actual fact, I think it sets up, we might say, the greatest play of that chapter. The little girl was meant to die in order for Jesus to demonstrate his power. And he he goes in, the little girl's dead, he goes upstairs with just a few of his close disciples, and he touches the girl. Again, remember, should have been made unclean like Elijah. And then the difference with Elijah kicks in. He says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And the girl rises. Why do I say the difference with Elijah arises? There's a very, very significant difference between what Elijah does and what Jesus does, and it's nothing to do with a line on top. Some weeks ago, we have, I think we have one Muslim student at Grove City College, uh, and he knocked on my door one lunchtime and, uh, uh, and said, uh, I, I, I want you to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to me. Have you got a few minutes? And I said, well, it's probably going to take a few, more than a few minutes. We need to set up some, you know, we'll set up some times to, to chat about this. He said, well, he said I, I, I grew up a, a Sunni Muslim. I converted to Shiism from what I read. Uh, he said, the one thing that stopped me from becoming a Christian was I can't understand the Trinity. I can't get my head around the idea that Jesus was God because so little in the New Testament, as I see it, seems to directly teach that Jesus is God. And so I said, well, I've got a few minutes to talk about that. And we went to Matthew chapter 5. And I pointed him back to Elijah. And I said, what's the big difference between Elijah and Jesus in this? And he got it straight away. He said, Elijah calls on God. Jesus just commands the girl to get up. He said, it's very clear that Jesus claims direct authority in the way that Elijah's authority, he says, kind of comes as it's delegated from God. And I said to him, well, what's the implication of that? He said, well, he said, it's very clear that Mark is trying to communicate there the fact that Jesus is God. And I said, yeah, go away and, go away and think about it. Look at, look at other passages in the Bible, I said, where, where that might, might be. I said, you may not believe them, but at least I think you'll see that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God in more places than you think. Elijah's authority, to go back to the beginning, is a delegated authority. He's God's delegate or ambassador. He speaks with no authority of his own. Even when he raises this child from the dead, he has to call upon God to do it. When Jesus raises the little girl from the dead, he simply commands her to get up. He demonstrates through that that he is God. What is the last application then of this for us? Well, I would say this. The greatest reason we all have to be afraid is death. It faces us all. It'll take loved ones from us, and ultimately, it will take us from our loved ones. And when we're faced with that moment, we need to put our trust in the one who has direct authority over death itself. And there is only one who has that, and that is God himself manifest in the flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lesson of this passage is not that, it's not simply that the God of the Old Testament is as gracious and merciful as the God of the New Testament. The message of this passage ultimately is that it points us to the God of the New Testament as the one who has the authority to do the things contained within this passage. And so as I close today, 
I would press upon you is this, whether Christian or non-Christian, the greatest thing you have to fear is death. And so the greatest question you have to ask yourself is, in whom should I place my trust so that death need not be something that I ultimately have to fear? And the answer of this passage is the God of Israel. And the answer of the Bible is the God of Israel as he ultimately manifests himself in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the grace and mercy you show throughout your scriptures towards your people. Sometimes grace and mercy in judgment, often in wonderful and kind, direct care. And we pray this day, Lord, that you would fill our hearts and minds with great and glorious thoughts of Christ, that where our wills are stubborn, you would break them down. And we pray above all, O Lord, that when we face that final day, when we will have to cross the river of death on our own, we will not be alone, but we will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.